0: I'm a true crime nerd and a lifelong Alaskan, and in my podcast, Murder Under the Midnight Sun, I bring you all the dark secrets of this frozen wasteland that I call home. We're the serial killer and missing persons capital of the United States, and we have our fair share of crazy crime stories. So if you want to hear some new cases that you've never heard of before, give my show a listen murder under the midnight sun available wherever fine podcasts are sold
1: this podcast deals with true crime i will be speaking openly and frankly about subjects such as murder rape and sexual assault listener discretion is advised On this episode of True Crime Truckers Podcast, we stay in sunny Los Angeles, California, at a time which has been called by some the golden era of serial killers, the 1970s. The bodies of 10 women have been found over the course of four months, nude and strangled on the hillsides around LA. Yet, it's a double murder over a thousand miles away that cracks the case wide open and helps the LAPD to apprehend not one but two men in connection with these crimes. Tonight, on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the case of Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono, the Hillside Stranglers.
0: of murders has had a chilling effect upon the people of the city.
1: Kenneth Alessio Bianchi was born on May 22, 1951, in Rochester, New York, to an alcoholic prostitute who gave him up for adoption two weeks after he was born. He was adopted in August of 1951 by Nicholas Bianchi and his wife Frances, and he was their only child. Bianchi was deeply troubled from a young age, with his adopted mother describing him as quote, a compulsive liar, from the time he could talk, unquote. he would often fall into inattentive trance-like daydreams, where his eyes would roll back into his head. A physician diagnosed the five-year-old Bianchi with petit mal seizures. Due to these symptoms, Bianchi was also frequently given to physical examinations by doctors because of an involuntary urination problem causing him a great deal of humiliation. The testing they had to do was very
0: much uh, like a rape. If if someone's ever had catheterization, there's a very humiliating factor to this. And for a small child, it had to be very difficult.
1: He had many behavioral problems and was prone to fits of anger. His mother responded by taking him to a psychiatrist multiple times. With Bianchi being diagnosed with a passive-aggressive personality disorder at the age of 10, Bianchi's IQ was measured at 116 at the age of 11, but, despite having an above-average intelligence, he was an underachiever and was moved twice from schools due to not getting along with teachers. His mother described him as, quote, lazy, and his teachers claimed that he was working below his capacity. After Bianchi's adopted father died suddenly from pneumonia in 1964, the teenage Bianchi refused to cry or show any other signs of grief.
0: He was certainly repressing a lot of it toward his mother, and, uh, and she very definitely exercised a great deal of uh, influence, and, and a lot of it. it turned out to have considerable negative impact. It certainly did leave a, a bad taste in his mouth for, uh, for women, and it could very well have, have generalized uh,
1: from there. Due to her husband's death, Frances had to work while her son attended high school and was known for keeping Bianchi home from school for long periods of time. Shortly after Bianchi graduated from Gates Chill High School in 1970, he married his high school sweetheart. The union ended after eight months. Supposedly, she left him without an explanation. As an adult, he dropped out of college after one semester and drifted through a series of menial jobs, finally ending up as a security guard at a jewelry store. This gave him a great opportunity to steal valuables, which he often gave to girlfriends or prostitutes to buy their loyalty. Because of many petty thefts, Bianchi was constantly on the move. In January of 1976, Kenneth Bianchi left Rochester, New York and moved to Los Angeles, California to live with his cousin Angelo Bono Jr. Angelo Bono was born on October 5, 1934 in Rochester, New York to first-generation Italian immigrants from San Bono. Bono had developed an extensive criminal history ranging from failure to pay child support, grand theft auto, assault, and rape. Bono provided a strong role model for the docile Bianchi, and when Bianchi was short on money, Bono came up with the idea of getting some girls to work for them as prostitutes. Two teenage runaways, Sabra Hannon and Becky Spears, met Bianchi and Bono and, once under their control, were forced to prostitute themselves. Eventually, Spears happened to meet lawyer David Wood, who was appalled at her situation and arranged for her to escape from the city. Encouraged by Spears' escape, Hannon ran away from Bianchi and Bono a short time later. With their pimping income gone, they had to find more teenage girls. Impersonating police officers, they eventually found another young woman and installed her in the previous girl's bedroom. Also, they bought from a prostitute named Deborah Noble a supposed trick list with names of men who frequented prostitutes. Deborah and her friend Yolanda Washington delivered this trick list to Bono on October 1977. Yolanda happened to mention to Bono that she always worked on a certain stretch of Sunset Boulevard. When Bianchi and Bono found that Deborah had deceived them about the list but were unable to find her, they decided to take out their rage on Yolanda. Her naked body was found on October 18, 1977, on a hillside near Ventura Freeway, and Detective Frank Salerno of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department was called to the scene.
0: When she was picked up, this was where they went. She had sex uh, in the back seat, and then he strangled her, and they took her along here and then eventually dumped her over the side.
1: It was determined that the corpse was cleaned before being dumped. Faint marks were visible around the neck, wrists, and ankles where a rope had been used, and that the victim had been raped. On November 1st, 1977, police were called to Alta Terrace Drive in La Crescenta, a neighborhood 12 miles north of downtown Los Angeles, where the body of a teenage girl was found naked face-up on a parkway In a middle-class residential area. The homeowner had covered her with a tarp in the early morning hours to prevent the neighborhood children from viewing her on their way to school. Ligature marks were on her neck, wrists, and ankles, indicating to the police that she was bound and strangled, and the body had been dumped, indicating she was killed elsewhere. Detective Salerno also found a small piece of light-colored fluff on her eyelid and saved it for the forensic experts.
2: One of the first things I noticed, obviously, was the ligature marks that were quite predominant on her ankles, wrists, and and around her neck. She appeared to be a teenager, totally nude. There appeared to be no trauma to her whatsoever. She looked like she had been placed there, not just tossed randomly. My first impression was that possibly two people had placed her there. As I looked at her face, which was turned in one direction, I noticed a small tuft of white fiber. It was uh, The fiber was about as big around as the tip of your finger, um, and it was uh, hooked or attached to her eyelid.
1: A coroner's report further detailed that she had been raped and sodomized. The girl, who was described as being, quote, small and thin, weighing about 90 pounds, and was appearing to be about 16 years old, unquote, was eventually identified as 15-year-old Judith Lynn Miller, a former student of Hollywood High School, runaway, and occasional sex worker. Judith was last seen alive on October 31st, 1977, talking to a man driving a large two-tone sedan on Sunset Boulevard next to Kearney's Express Limited. The stranglers told her they were undercover police officers, handcuffed her, and took her to Bono's upholstery shop on Colorado Boulevard in Glendale, where she was murdered. Five days later, on November 6th, 1977, the nude body of another woman was discovered near the Chevy Chase Country Club in Glendale. Like Miller, she bore five-point neck, wrist, and ankle ligature marks and had been strangled and brutally raped, but not sodomized. The woman was identified as 21-year-old waitress Elisa Teresa Kasten, who was last seen leaving the restaurant where she worked the night before her body was discovered. Kasten was also a professional dancer for the LA Knockers, and unlike the two previous victims, was not a prostitute, drug user, or runaway.
2: Judy was still there at the coroner's office because she hadn't been identified, and we pulled her body out on a gurney. We placed it next to Lisa Kasten's, and that's when uh, uh, Joe Choi, who was our deputy coroner at the time, made the comment that they looked like they came out of the same Xerox machine. The uh, ligature marks on the ankles, wrists, and and neck were exactly the same.
1: The stranglers followed Kasten after she was seen driving home from work pulled her over in the street she lived on, presented a fake police badge, and told her that they were detectives. They then handcuffed her and told her they needed to take her in for questioning. At some point in early November 1977, the two men approached 24-year-old Catherine Laurie Baker, the daughter of actor Peter Laurie, famous for his roles as the serial killer Frantz Lang in the film M with the intent on abducting and killing her. However, when they found a picture of her sitting on her father's lap among her identification, they let her go without incident. She did not realize who the men were until they were arrested, at which point she recalled that the two men lashed LA police badges and had approached her in the past. On Sunday, November 13, 1977, two girls, 12-year-old Dolores Ann Cepeda and 14-year-old Sonia Marie Johnson, boarded an RTD bus in front of the Eagle Rock Plaza and headed home. The last time they were seen was getting off of the bus on York Boulevard and Avenue 46 and approaching a 2 tone sedan which reportedly had two men inside. The two corpses were found by a nine-year-old boy who had been treasure hunting in a trash heap on a hillside near Dodger Stadium. On November twentieth, 1977, both girls' bodies had already begun to decompose, But it was still determined that they had been strangled and raped they were children they
0: went to a catholic school they didn't seem the part but again they looked 17.
1: earlier that same day november 20th 1977 hikers found the naked body of 20 year old christina weckler a quiet honor student at the art center college of design on a hillside between glendale and eagle rock deemed by Detective Bob Grogan of the Los Angeles Police Department to be a, quote, loving and serious young woman who should have had a bright future ahead of her, unquote. When found by Grogan, ligature marks were on her wrist, ankles, and neck, and when he turned her over, bruises on her breasts were obvious and blood oozed from her rectum. Unlike the first three victims, however, there were two puncture marks on her arm, but no signs of needle tracks that indicated a drug addict. It was later revealed that Weckler had been injected with Windex, a hard surface cleaner.
0: Christina was an art student who had just returned home from classes, was
1: in her driveway
0: when she was, in quotes, arrested for curfew violation. And she went along with it not fearing them, thinking they were legitimate police. That puts a little panic in the
2: city because uh, every day uh, citizens are pulled over uh, by
1: policemen. On November 23, 1977, the badly decomposed body of 28-year-old Evelyn Jane King, an actress who had gone missing around November 9, was found near the Los Feliz off-ramp at the Golden State Freeway. The severity of decomposition prevented determination as to whether she had been raped or tortured, but she had been strangled like the others, and, in response, authorities created a task force. Initially composed of 30 officers from the LAPD, the Sheriff's Department, and the Glendale Police Department to catch the predator now dubbed the Hillside Strangler. On November 29, 1977, police found the body of 18-year-old Lauren Ray Wagner, a business student who lived with her parents in the San Fernando Valley in the hills around Glendale's Mount Washington. She had ligature marks on her neck, ankles, and wrist but there were also burn marks on her hands, indicating that she was tortured. Lauren's parents had expected her to come home before midnight, and the next morning when they found her car parked across the street with the door ajar, her father questioned the neighbors. He found that the woman who lived in the house where Lauren's car had been parked saw her abduction. This woman stated that she saw two men. One was tall and young, the other was older and shorter with bushy hair. She also stated that she heard Wagner cry out, quote, you won't get away with this, unquote, during her abduction. On December 14th, 1977, the body of 17-year-old prostitute Kimberly Diane Martin, which was naked and showed signs of torture, was found on a deserted lot near the Los Angeles City Hall. Martin had previously joined a call girl agency because she feared exposing herself on the streets with the Stranglers on the Loose. But, unfortunately, the killers happened to place a call to her agency from Hollywood Public Library payphone, and she was a call girl who was dispatched. When the police investigated the apartment she had been dispatched to, they found it vacant and broken into.
2: When the Kimberly Martin case uh, came about, uh, I felt, and this is in looking back, that this was the case we were going to break it on because there were so many more things we had. Uh... We had a location where she was last seen, uh, which was the Tamarind departments. There was the last phone call uh, that was made to the outcall service from the library. Uh, there were witnesses to the two suspects that were seen there. Uh, as it turned out, there were fingerprints, a number of them, uh, that were never matched up until uh, a year later or so. Everything that had occurred, uh, we had um, many more solid leads on that case than, than we'd had on all of the cases put together before that. Uh, and they all seemed to fizzle. Uh, they just uh, went away.
1: The final victim was discovered in Los Angeles on February 17, 1978, when a helicopter pilot spotted an orange Dotson abandoned off a cliff on the Angeles Crest Highway. Police responded to the scene and found the body of the car's owner, 20-year-old Cindy Lee Hudspeth, a student and part-time waitress in the trunk. Her corpse again showed ligature marks, and she had been raped and tortured. It appeared she had been strangled and put in the trunk of the car, which was then pushed off the cliff above.
2: Uh, We had an individual that uh, came forward that identified uh, a suspect driving what we thought was Cindy's car up Angeles Highway uh, after she had been abducted. Uh, We felt we were close to solving this thing. and and again the leads just uh, petered out, they just, uh, we worked through them and and, and nothing, nothing developed.
1: One night, shortly after they botched their would-be 11th murder, Bianchi revealed to Bono that he had participated in LAPD police ride-alongs and that he was currently being questioned about the Strangler case. Bono flew into a rage and threatened to kill Bianchi if he did not move to Bellingham, Washington, which he did in May of 1978. On January 11, 1979, working as a security guard, Bianchi lured two female students into a house that he was guarding. The women were 22-year-old Karen Mandick and 27-year-old Diane Wilder, both students at Western Washington University. Bianchi forced the first student down the stairs in front of him and then strangled her. He murdered the second woman in a similar fashion. Without help from his partner, Bianchi left many clues, and the police apprehended him the next day.
0: Two sergeants made contact with Mr. Bianchi, and at that point, he denied any knowledge of knowing the girls or having contact with them or any connection at all to the girls. Ken became uh, a suspect almost immediately. The chief of police, Terry Mangan, decided to Put a public broadcast, uh, use the radio stations to put out the information that these two girls were missing, a description of the car, and uh, ask that anybody that happened to see the car call the Bellingham Police Department. A lady had called in and told us that there was a bobcat matching that description parked in this particular cul-de-sac that we're standing in right now. When we came in, the vehicle was parked uh, right just about where that basketball hoop is now, but one one vehicle width out. And when you looked into the car, all you could see uh, laying in, in the car was actually one body and a portion of another body. I had the locksmith drill the lock out of the trunk, and myself and one of my crew started to remove the bodies uh, one at a time, uh, on the gurneys where they were uh,
1: taken away to be autopsied. A California driver's license and a routine background check linked him to the addresses of two of the strangler's victims. In January of 1979, after an intensive investigation, police charged Bianchi and Bono with the crimes. The legal case against Bono was based largely upon Bianchi's testimony. Deciding that Bianchi was an unreliable and uncooperative witness, the case's original prosecutors from the District Attorney, John Vandykamp's office, moved to dismiss all charges against Bono and set him free. The presiding judge, Ronald M. George, refused to release Bono and reassigned the case to California Attorney General George Deckelman's office. Bono's trial would become the longest in American legal history, lasting from November of 1981 until November of 1983. During the trial, Bianchi, in exchange for a lighter sentence, testified against Bono. The jury convicted Bono on nine counts of murder and sentenced him to life imprisonment. At the conclusion of Bono's trial in 1983, presiding judge Ronald George, who later became Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, stated during sentence, quote, I would not have the slightest reluctance to impose the death penalty in this case, were it within my power to do so. Ironically, although these two defendants utilized almost every form of legalized execution against their victims, the defendants have escaped any form of capital punishment, unquote. At his trial, Bianchi pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity claiming that another personality, one Steve Walker, had committed the crimes. He even convinced a few expert psychiatrists that he indeed suffered from multiple personality disorder. But investigators brought in their own psychiatrist, mainly Martin Orne. When Orne mentioned to Bianchi that in genuine cases of the disorder, there tends to be three or more personalities, Bianchi promptly created another alias, Billy. Eventually, investigators discovered that the name Steve Walker came from a student whose identity Bianchi had previously attempted to steal for the purpose of fraudulently practicing psychology. Police also found a small library of books in Bianchi's home on topics of modern psychology, further indicating his ability to fake the disorder. Once his claims were subject to scrutiny, Bianchi eventually admitted that he had been faking the disorder. He was eventually diagnosed with Antisocial Personality Disorder and with sexual sadism. In 1980, Bianchi began a relationship with Veronica Compton, a woman he had met while in prison. During his trial, she testified for the defense, telling the jury a false, vague tale about the crimes in a way to exculpate Bianchi. She also admitted to wanting to buy a mortuary with another convicted murderer. For the purpose of necrophilia. She was later convicted and imprisoned for attempting to strangle a woman she had lured to a motel in an attempt to convince authorities that the Hillside Strangler was still on the loose. Bianchi allegedly had given her some semen during a prison visit for her to use in order to make it look like a rape or a murder committed by the Strangler. In 1992, Bianchi sued Katherine Ronwood for $8.5 for having an image of his face depicted on a trading card. He claimed that his face was his trademark. The judge dismissed the case after ruling that if Bianchi had been using his face as a trademark when he was killing women, he would not have tried to hide it from the police. Bianchi is serving his sentence at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. He was denied parole on August 18, 2010 by state board in Sacramento. He will be able to apply for parole again in 2025. In 1986, Bono married Christine Kizka, a mother of three, and a supervisor at the California State Employment Development Department. Bono died of a heart attack on September 21, 2002, at Trust State Prison in California, where he was serving his life sentence. It is a very rare occurrence to have a serial killer duo, yet in the case of Bianchi and Bono, it's even almost unheard of. I say this because I believe that had they not been around each other, neither would have become a killer. They needed from each other what the other lacked in order to take that next step into murder. This is why when Bianchi killed on his own, he was easily detected. With Bono dead, and Bianchi in jail for the rest of his life, the world is a little bit safer. It's just unfortunate that it took 12 women's deaths to capture them. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org backslash truecrimetrucker backslash. Also, if you would like to donate to the show and get yourself a True Crime Truckers podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com backslash podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.pritt81. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. So until then, stay safe.